0: Hi, It's Tony Brewski from Real Ghost Stories Online, inviting you to subscribe to our other podcast called The Grave Talks. It's where I sit down and interview individuals who've had extreme paranormal situations happen to them in their lives. Just search The Grave Talks on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Be sure to press subscribe and give us some stars to help spread the word that this show exists now here's a 15 minute preview of the grave talks today on the grave talks demonic artifacts can historic artifacts still hold demons conjured up by ancient civilizations what power can these entities hold over the living in the present From demons, jinns, possession, sinister artifacts, and gruesome archaeological discoveries. Dr. Heather Lynn has been seeking out answers to these questions for quite some time. Today on The Grave Talks, we discuss the lore behind real relics believed to be the cause of hauntings and demonic possession. We also discuss the possibility of modern objects holding spirits and a message for the living. Can the archaeological record prove the existence of demons and malevolent entities?
1: I am an author, historian, and some call renegade archaeologist. Um, what I do is I look into alternative, sort of fringe topics, things that are outside the mainstream narrative, anything from, you know, paleo contact theory, uh, which some people would call ancient aliens, um, to just mythology, folklore, symbolism. Consciousness, so many different things that most people would consider uh, a little strange. Um, So my background is that I started actually uh, in community college. I earned an associate's degree in archaeology and uh, worked in archaeology and uh, continued my studies into anthropology and earned a master's in history. Uh, my thesis actually examined the intersection of class inequality, consumer culture, propaganda, and public education, and how all all of those things sort of met in early modern Europe. Um, so nothing too, you know, out outrageous or strange, uh, a pretty, pretty, you know, common, predictable path of specialization. I went on to uh, pursue a doctorate in education at uh, the University of New England. Uh, In that dissertation, I raised the questions about whether or not digital technologies in museums really, you know, benefited anybody or not. I looked at the way public education in museums was handled. And uh, basically, you know, it's actually, it was something close to my heart because you go to a lot of the museums these days and you want to see artifacts and a lot of times I don't know if anybody's noticed this but uh, sometimes the museums are lighter on artifacts than they used to be and instead they have a lot of these gamified systems or interactive things and you know while that's all fun it's it, it replaced the traditional artifacts. And sometimes, a lot of times, surprisingly, people go looking for the artifacts and what they'll find in its place are, um, you know, reproductions. Mm -hmm. And to me, that that was just something that, you know, I, I kind of have always had a passion for fighting for the public education of history when I was a kid I hated history I really hated it it was the most boring thing to me I didn't like I wasn't very good at rote memorization so I didn't like names and dates and memorizing those sorts of things and I just really hated history with a passion I was a musician and so that's what I thought I was going to go into and um, you know so I was like now history is not for me but I, I actually my my divergence from mainstream anything, I think, started when I was a teenager because I actually didn't finish high school. I left home and traveled the country just exploring and and looking for answers and seeking new religious paths and I was just kind of out there and uh, so I didn't follow those dreams of becoming a um, a classical musician or anything like that. Instead, I just thought, I'm hightailing it out of here and, uh, you know, that doesn't make for a very good future and so once I got my act together, I went back to school and And did the, you know, right thing and got myself backed into a a path of a more successful, you know, ordinary, you know, journey of education. Um, And I thought, well, you know, I'll just take some things I'm interested in. And I hadn't considered history because again, I was so, it was so boring. Um, But I loved history. And that was the weird thing that It didn't even occur to me how much I loved history that, you know, I loved archaeology. When I was really little, I used to go next door to a house that had been torn down where the foundation had been left. And I used to pretend I was excavating. I would pick up all kinds of little pieces of garbage, essentially. And I I thought I was on adventures. And I just I loved the idea of the past and documentaries. And I guess I was called, you know, an armchair historian at that point. Mm -hmm. And it just never occurred to me that I could actually do something with that until I went back to school. School and started taking those classes and learning about history in a new way that wasn't based in the rote memorization or the information coming from the authorities at the top down to the people. and And the more I got into that, and the more I you know again, I was innocent and wanting to always do the right thing and go on the right path, I started seeing a lot of corruption. And when I started working in archaeology, I, I saw more and more corruption, and not just corruption in the sense of, uh, you know, funding issues or those political issues, while those are very much real and, you know, but almost maybe expected, sadly, I started seeing Things that didn't really sit well with me in a philosophical way. The idea of, you know, some history just shouldn't be shared because people couldn't handle it Mm -hmm. or we shouldn't look into it or there's no place for this. Just disregard it. In fact, don't write it in the report. Just things like that. And the more and more I got into it, the more I thought this this is this kind of weird. Finally, I worked in some museums and did things and I ended up, uh, you know, getting another doctorate in comparative religion and just some certificates here and there to specialize in osteoarchaeology and archaeoastronomy. And so I'm a lifelong learner. I, you know, I believe in continuing education and never stopping, but I believe that it's important to educate yourself in order to pursue the things you're interested in and not the things that you think might get the best chance of funding. And and so it's just basically a philosophy that I didn't agree with. And so I couldn't find that it meshed well with my values. And then I just decided, you know what, I'm not doing this. I, it's not worth it to me. And I'm going to pursue my interest full time in all of these strange and interesting subjects. And uh, I'm, I'm very glad. So far, that's what I've been doing. And um, I, I couldn't be happier.
0: When it comes to being into the field or digging into the field, and you were getting some of that pushback as you were entering it and you were hearing pushback like oh, this shouldn't be shared with the public they can't handle it well, well, well give me an example of, of one of those things that stood out to you at first that you were it's kind of like really oh, so we shouldn't talk about this
1: yeah and that's and that was really something that was um you know I I was working in in, in an urban environment I was working in community archaeology I, I did a lot with uh you know disadvantaged youth in the summer we did a program um, the lab did a program where we were trying to help young people from an urban environment understand that there's still history underneath their feet that that you know it doesn't matter a lot of movies and things will show archaeology as something that's out in the desert or these exotic places and while that's totally true there's more to archaeology and that's what we were trying to you know in Im- Im- part on the the kids Mm -hmm. and in addition to that we wanted to show them you know why it's important to value that history and 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 so it was a really wonderful program when we're you know doing these sorts of things and so you wouldn't think that anything in that would breed any sort of controversy at least in terms of the artifacts found so this is what that's probably what made it even more weird to me so and maybe I was inclined you know honestly my bias was already there um being that I was interested in alternative ideas but so I, you know, I we're going and and it, one in one excavation in particular, we are literally excavating within the metropolitan area, um, downtown, like right in in the heart of downtown. Mm-hmm. And what we were finding, were we were doing some research in uh, some of the homesteads, the early homesteads of the Rockefellers, and uh, you know, because. Cleveland they had a lot of homes and different things and you know clearly there's an impact there. So you know we were just doing some things to look at how urban sprawl, suburban sprawl, you know how did things happen at the turn of the century and you know earlier and just very basic things. So we were looking and you know I found a we were in a privy and I found a lot of bottles of this uh, Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup and it's, it's something that I took some time studying and it was it was fascinating. It's this uh This bottle of syrup, it was one of these old-time medicines that had opioids and cocaine, you know, what you'd expect. And it it was, they would say one bottle would last the kid an entire lifetime or all of your kids because, you know, essentially you give them a little bit and that's all it took. And you shouldn't, you know, one bottle's enough, so just buy one bottle. Well, the thing is, you know, we kept finding a lot of bottles huge stashes of these bottles in individual homes so you know these like each home would have just tons of bottles thrown out that they were you know past the age of the kid too like wait a minute what's going on and then I so I took a look at this and it wasn't very interesting to most people but my ideas and the things that I ended up following in um, you know my master's program was Um, The idea of propaganda or using marketing and, and advertising to, you know, control people, even in the earliest sense before it was propaganda. And so I started looking at the advertising methods of, you know, this particular pharmaceutical and it well, they hardly advertised what it did for the child. Most of the time, what was going on in the later years was, it was showing these, you know, Victorian women that were decked out and very much, you know, leisurely pose on a bed, and it was just talking about how luxurious they'd feel, and it was hinting around at a lot of things. And the more I researched, the more I found that there were actually there were discussions and even, you know, hearings on this particular pharmaceutical company and how the government forever knew that. This product was very dangerous, um, obviously, and it was not being marketed or sold with the intention of actually being used for the children as much as it was being used as a drug for the moms. And they were advertising this glamorous lifestyle of the mothers, you know, who would just, they'd be high on this all day. And that's why there were so many bottles. And it was coincidental because, you know, in the area... Um. It it was actually close to one of the very first, if not the very first, um, woman's only opioid clinics, and and so and I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, this is nuts. You know, it's just not that big a deal. Not I wouldn't say controversial much, and uh, it was like, oh yeah, well you know how about not like wait a minute what i have this great research project this paper look at this this is amazing i had some you know bottle specialists i had people lined up and it was like yeah we don't we don't think we should put that out like wait what are you talking about opinions here that that really struck me as odd like i why tell me why why shouldn't we put quote put this out there like it's it's research it should just be objective this does not compute and it's you know it it was just left at that until one evening you know we were at a restaurant had a few drinks going and you know talking about um fundraising for the lab and and then it was told to me well you know the 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 people who pay the people who were trying to appeal for the funds the quote stakeholders that was always a term thrown around around with stakeholders they want a certain thing found and a certain thing not and that's really what we need to to focus on, and it, it and it was just like the honesty started flowing, and it you know little things like that just started getting me to think. Well, this is a silly little, this is a this was at a community college. I was like, this is a, it was a huge community college, but I was like, this is at a a community college in an urban environment. This isn't groundbreaking. Well, no pun intended. This isn't groundbreaking stuff, and yet we're beholden to these mysterious stakeholders for what? I don't even know the end game here and it was so compartmentalized and all I could think was if it's this bad here then what's going on elsewhere? Mm-hmm. And then that's, you know, I, I had that thought and you know, some years later that's when you know I started researching uh, a little more of the I guess the idea of stakeholders and the corruption in that side of things and or on that side of things and that's what led me to put out my report the sumerian controversy and that's when i started you know looking into who's funding major excavations in the middle east because again i thought if this is happening in a you know basically a, a small urban center now what over these small issues these are not big issues and what other meddling is going on with the quote stakeholders? What What is the state of, of this quote science? You know, what is happening here? And so I really got more and more interested in looking at the, you know, the money end of it and trying to find who's, what's really going on here. And that's when I started to find that, you know, there's uh, excavations happening in the Middle East that are Um, funded by what you would think would be universities and then you find out well who's funding the the grants and the foundation and the lab and who's who's really funding that aspect of the university and then you find that it's big oil companies or maybe possibly worse depending on your you know how you look at things um private collectors of antiquities so that right there is like wait a minute so you're telling me if if um you know, in this particular one that I wrote about with a uh, uh, Thyssen from the Thyssen family dynasty, uh, he is considered the having the largest collection of antiquities, except for the queen. They don't know if he or the queen of England actually, which who has the most antiquities. So they just don't know for sure. But he's right up there. So if we're we're talking major collector, and he's the one who has laundered money. Through different foundations and going through to to sprinkle it down into the university system to spr- you know, it's this way of taking money from the top and sprinkling it down so that people that are on the ground, like some of the archaeologists, they don't really know who's funding this. They just think, "Well, I'm working for the university." It's the university. There's there's grants, sure, but you know, there's so much compartmentalization and corruption going on in that that to me, that's just an absolute conflict of interest to think that okay, we have this hugely powerful billionaire figure who collects antiquities for himself so that he can have them in his living room, literally. And he even stated in a, an interview, this Thyssen this in particular, he stated in an interview that, wow, I couldn't believe that you could just buy these things.
0: I hope you enjoyed your 15-minute preview of our new podcast, The Grave Talks. Be sure to subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download podcasts to not miss any episode of the show. New episodes every single Monday. Just search for The Grave Talks and then press subscribe. Give us a review while you're at it and some stars that will help us grow in the rankings and let other folks know that the show exists to make an even better show for you. The Grave Talks. Check it out at thegravetalks.com.
1: We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at HomeAdvisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the Home Advisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your everything. Download the Home Advisor app today to get started. Derek is the new superintendent in a large unified school district. He wanted to hold the district accountable to the same standards they hold students to, to level up and surpass expectations. So he earned a doctoral degree in education online at Grand Canyon University. Now he's taking charge and making measured improvements. What do you think preparing students for success looks like? GCU offers over 175 high-quality online programs like this one. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.